Wagwan, everybody. Welcome to the Dis Afimi History Podcast, where we'll be speaking about history and as well family history and how history relates in terms of Caribbean people um, for the present as well as in the past and how in the past what that does and brings forth for what we are going through at present and what we can learn from our history, from our family, and take that moving forward. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you like it, please ensure to subscribe, like, and review. Thank you. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Victoria Barnett-Woods, who is an assistant teaching professor at Loyola University, Maryland, in the Humanities Department, where she specializes in literature of the long 18th century. And in this episode, we will be discussing the article that she wrote, Bequeath Unto My Daughter, Slaves, Women, Slavery, and Property in the 18th Century Atlantic. So let's have a listen. I just wanted to thank you so much, Victoria, for coming on to the podcast today and to discuss your article as it um, is very personal to me because this is what I discovered in my own family history research to know that this uh, took place in in history, it took place in Hack, and that, um, you know, to have the conversation, I guess, of to know that your father has bequeathed slaves, enslaved people to you as for your advancement in life and to make sure that you were well taken care of. So, you know, that's, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And that's why, you know, I was just excited and you know when I came across your article because this matched with what I came across in my research in genealogy so I just want to you know start off with you know this is a group of people women that aren't normally talked about in history and and in particular free persons of colors that own slave slaves why was this something important for you to write about Thank you so much, Wendy. I'm delighted to be here. Um, And thank you for the invitation for me to discuss the article in further detail. Um, So for me, actually, I am, um, I was a, I was in graduate school, I got my PhD um, in English literature. And interestingly enough, I came across this historical phenomenon, this historical, there's a, there's historical precedence of um, women of color who had, who were either formerly enslaved or um, they, you know, their grandchildren or granddaughters of enslaved, um, of enslaved women who um, were, you know, were bequeathed in other enslaved people as property. Um, I came across this actually through a novel. Um, It's an all-star, I know, right? There is an 1808 novel titled The Woman of Color. Um, There is a 2008 modern edition of it through Broadview Press, if anybody is interested, it's great. Um, But for those who are unfamiliar with this, um, I think hopefully increasingly more well-known novel, especially I think within the 18th century studies context, Um, For those unfamiliar with the novel, though, um, The Woman of Color, it tells the story of a woman by the name of Olivia Fairfield, who is herself a woman of mixed heritage, who is obligated under the conditions of her father's will to marry a cousin by the name of Augustus in England. So from Jamaica, she travels to England and she absolutely hates it there. She as a and we're, we're we as the reader are encountering kind of her interior reflection of her experiences in Bristol and in London and then finally in this kind of more rural setting in Devon, England. But while she is in Bristol, she encounters racism, and we, as the reader, are witness to that. Um, she is privy to corruption in London, and it's not until she moves out of these urban spots and into more rural um, agricultural settings that she finds kind of a, a, a husband, right? A husband and a place and safety and security there. Um, there, these conditions are, you know, in terms of her father's will, Mm -hmm. um, these conditions of her existence, of her needing to keep her wealth, because that was the stipulation is that if she didn't marry her cousin, she would lose all of her money, right? And she was incredibly wealthy, um, or at least her father was. Um, And so these conditions are certainly uncomfortable at their best and 
full of patriarchal hostility um, yeah. at their worst for the modern, at least for the modern day reader. Um, and in the introduction, and there's there's a plot twist at the end of this novel that I will not unveil mm-hmm. unless you know readers are curious. It has to do with it has to do with her marriage to Augustus, but I'll leave that for readers to get very excited about potentially. Um, but it was in the introduction that prefaced the 1808 novel, the modern edition, that the editor Lyndon Dominique he speculates that the writer of that novel, because it was published anonymously. Anonymously, may have been Anne Wright Maitland, one of the figures that I discuss in the article. Um, And the issue is that she is a, you know, Anne Wright Maitland, a born Anne Wright, is Mm -hmm. a historical woman whose records we can trace who had exact, not exactly the same, but incredibly similar conditions placed upon her from her own father that she had to marry somebody um, of white ancestry in order for her to keep her wealth. Um, And so when I... When I was reading this novel, I initially wanted to think of um, kind of our intervention of women and property and the work that I've done, kind of thinking about the um, about the Caribbean and trans- the larger transatlantic connections. Mm-hmm. I initially thought of this project as something situated within a feminist lens, okay. but when 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 unpacking the history of the 18th century Atlantic world and thinking about this novel and then thinking about the historical figures that um, that connect to this fictional figure, um, I had to I had to rethink right the, the this novelistic representation and the potential like historical reference of an intersectional identity, someone who had to deal with issues of not just race, but also gender. And so what I found kind of thinking through starting with this novel was connecting this fictional figure of Olivia Fairfield with the historical Anne Wright Maitland. Um, then, then all of a sudden emerged this kind of larger scholarly um, sensitivity to the fact that there were historically, you know, historical women of color who inherited property from their white fathers. And mm-hmm. a, a lot of that property included enslaved men and women. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And because, I mean, as I said before, this is, you know, this is what I've uncovered in my own family line researching in Jamaica. And what would you say that these women, these free women of color, the impact they had on their independence and choice that they that came for having enslaved persons through inheritance? Yeah, that is, it is an element as far as I'm concerned. Um, It's an element that is quite understudied when thinking about the British West Indies. And after I kind of share my response, I'd love to hear what you have uncovered in terms of individuals who have inherited, you know, folks of color who have inherited. And so I want to hear kind of the, what you have uncovered, because I think it's incredible. Um, Because I, I approach it um, as my, my interest is, is my interest is that is that of a historian, of a scholar, you yourself are a historian. I unfortunately don't have any personal connections um, to the history of the self, but I think, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't think that it's absolutely important. And I think more investigation and research should be done. Um, I think also as a scholar, maybe part of the reasons why this is an understudied component, the fact that we have free women of color who are independence and choice um, and have money and resources through the system of enslavement is that it is difficult, I think, for anybody to reckon with and massage into, I guess, the, the complexities of this history and kind of and juxtapose it and to, to juxtapose it or include it to the, this history, this narrative of the past that we have. Um, at least in the United States, there is this dichotomy of white enslaver, black enslaved. And while this is certainly a overall historical important truth that even individuals in this country wish to deny, 
um, I think that there's this additional compounding truth that is included to this dichotomy that 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 indicates that there's there is truth behind the fact that folks of African ancestry were enslavers. Like there is there are individuals who relied on and were dependent upon the system of, of institutionalized slavery to survive. And so the language of representing these women is a little sticky because on one hand, historians, I myself want to applaud these women for making a name for themselves, for their courage, for the tenacity, you know, especially when thinking about Judith, um, Judith Philippe, for example, like thinking about their sheer strategic genius and will to power. Um, and so that's something that I want to applaud. That's something that I want to, I'm like, yes, these women have agency. That is great. You know, congratulations, ladies. But then on the other hand, we have to reconcile with something that seems like a hypocrisy that these women inherited, participated in, and perpetuated the institution of slavery while they were living and working as enslavers in the Caribbean. No, definitely. And I, I know that you said, you know, that I do have that, you know, personal connection and it does, <laughs> it brings a different layer to it because now you see things a little bit differently because yes, they had their freedom. Yes, they had the the wealth, um, you know, transferred down, but at the same time that they owned individuals, they're as well helping others that were escaping slavery, which mm-hmm. when I came across was like, well, but you owned. So yeah. they themselves were kind of in a mixed bag type of position because they knew that they had, you know, their section in life was much higher. Their standard was higher, but at the same time, still trying to assist others that were trying to get their freedom as well. So I don't think it was necessarily for them to um, to have a, it was cut and dry, but it mm-hmm. was a lot of gray, a lot of gray in there. And yes, it definitely did bring about to see things differently and why things are they are today and how that line was able to to be so prominent within the, their own community. And mm-hmm. some of them didn't necessarily marry. They be, were single their entire lives, but they had mm-hmm. so much, you know, power within the community that they didn't have to. People knew who they were based on their status and their name, so to speak. So it's very, how would I say, as it's not black and white, it's yeah. very gray. There's a lot of gray and it's a lot of it's a mixed bag right because it's not necessarily that you're totally upset with them and you're not totally happy with them at the same time for what yeah. you uncovered because the story isn't as straight as as it should be yeah um i do you happen to have do you, your previous comment about individuals who were both enslavers but then assisted others to their freedom do you do you happen to have a story of an ancestor who did that Yes. Uh, so, but I don't have the actual title because I saw it in a, in a book. So I'd have ah. to go back and read it. But yes, she, uh, and, and it was a female, she did assist mm-hmm. others because she was in um, St. Catherine's. So, and at that time it's, it was St. Thomas Ye Vale. And mm-hmm. yes, in that area where they lived, she definitely assisted others in being able to obtain their freedom. And they called it the underground, you know, uh, railroad, so to speak, in Jamaica. So it was just very interesting to come across that particular reading and to Mm -hmm. see that, yes, she owned slaves herself and yet was assisting others to obtain their freedom, which I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of dumbfounded in a way to know that that actually happened. Yeah, I think that's so funny that they called it an underground railroad because yeah. that would have predated, in fact, um, um, a lot of the work that was being done in the United States. Um, but that's um, that's awesome. That is that is mm-hmm. great. No, but um, just one of the many stories, right, that you are, yeah. you know, you'll uncover and find that things weren't necessarily black and white and things yeah. weren't, you know, always how they were. Like, you know, the other thing as well is just knowing that, you know, I think we talked before, you know, recording is the fact that, you know, with um, the abolitionists, they were Quakers. And mm-hmm. then to know that 
Quakers actually owned slaves in Jamaica and they were in Jamaica and throughout the the Caribbean, but they were a different, right? They weren't necessarily the abolitionists in England, you know, demanding that people have their freedom. Yeah. And in the way, what I think is kind of interesting is that like, I think that speaks to how integral the systemization of enslavement was critical to like the ba- the bare bones economy because you have yeah. Quakers that were in in New England um who you know were you know that was the, the earliest group of abolitionists in the United States were the Quakers um but then if you go to if you go to Jamaica if you go to the Caribbean you'll find that they were enslavers themselves I think that is also true what I think is potentially most fascinating is um, when it comes to individuals of religious groups who were enslavers, um, the Jesuits. Yes. Um, I, my previous institution was a Jesuit and was a Jesuit college. And um, one of the things that the institution is kind of going through right now is thinking about the fact that part of the college was built on um, uh, the selling of enslaved laborers from the Jesuits to the larger um, Baltimore area um, to to continue to build the college. And the same exact story was happening in Georgetown University in D.C. Um, and so um, and what I think is quite fascinating is that there's um, there's a, a an individual by by the name of Jean-Pierre Labat who wrote um, he wrote this huge like two volume doc, uh, two volume um um, kind of manual for surviving the West Indies and includes like historical and geographic um, kind of uh, information about the West Indies. And he himself was, you know, he himself was a, a French Jesuit. And so it's it's interesting that, um, and he was probably one of the most well-known enslavers of the period. Um, and so there's, so there's something to be said about how this, this the idea of seeming, hypocrisy that exists in terms of like religious canon um, kind of flying in the face of these massive economic systems where it where incorporation participation and success in that economy means in fact maybe doubling or to 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 hold back a reserve like or to even defy religious canon you know to like yes. to defy like what you what your what your beliefs are supposed to be um and i think we get that with with the quakers and the jesuits that were that were there in the caribbean oh yeah mm-hmm. definitely because they're i mean they were all considered to be i guess the dissenter religions right so anything mm-hmm. that wasn't part of the church of england was considered to be dissenters right yes. so it's just <laughs> one of those things and you know coming across all of this language you know that's the other thing that you come to realize is that things were slightly different. It's not, you know, the change of all of that. So it's, uh, I mean, it's just something to think about, right? And to, to kind of reflect on. And, you know, and that's why I guess with your article, I mean, it kind of highlights mm-hmm. the agency or the lack thereof the of the enslaved woman had in shaping their own destinies within the context of property ownership and inheritance. Can you just speak a little bit to that? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm not anticipating that folks will have read the article before they listen to this podcast. So I'll give a, a little, a brief overview yeah. here. Um, so this particular article, um, which is featured in a larger volume um, of the Journal for 18th Century Studies, um, it's a it was a larger volume that looked at specifically the relationship between women and property of the long 18th century. Most of the work focuses on um, it's a British journal, so a lot of the a lot of the energies focus on um, uh, England um, and the and the Greater Britain. Um, but I focus my with my own specialization. I looked at um, three particular women mm-hmm. who were living in the British West Indies, um, or I guess Judith Philippe, kind of depending yep. upon what year we're working with. She's either in the French or the British. Um, but um, but I but the article itself presents the lives of three women: Judith Philippe, Anne Maitland, formerly Anne Wright. Um, and Dorothy Bennett, who was a new figure that kind of emerged um, out of the um, out of the research that I did on the other two women. Um, each woman, each of these figures um, had an ancestral maternal connection to the system of slavery. Judith Philippe and Anne Maitland of the three were incredibly wealthy 
Um, they were they were able to move to the United Kingdom. They they lived in England for a period of time. Um, Matt Maitland stayed. Judith Philippe um, at um, at in eighteen oh seven. She decided to come back. I can we can speculate about why 1807, the year right before the abolition of the transatlantic slave yeah. trade, why she made that decision to go back to keep a to keep a closer eye on her properties potentially. Um, speculation is is there for the for the taking with that, um, but um, but they uh, but with they these two women um, cemented their relationships with white men either through marriage or through long um, through long um, relationships um, that were outside of outside of wedlock but still um, if not necessarily monogamous they were long term. Mm-hmm. Um, Dorothy Bennett, who is the who I kind of would argue is the more interesting of the women. She was born enslaved. Um, Indeed, Dorothy Bennett had to be written down twice as free um, during her life. And so that that lends to a kind of interesting idea of what her subject position would have been in between the times where she was apparently apparently free at the age of 13, but then uh, but then had to be freed again later on um, as her as uh, as she was marked in her father's will um, as inheriting property. Um, and so her mother, Dorothy Bennett's mother, um, who all we we only have her first name, Sylvia, um, remained enslaved to the Bennett family her entire life. Um, and I think in terms of these women having agency or not having agency in terms of how these women shaped their own destinies, the the hard truth of the matter is that they, all three women, relied upon and strategically aligned themselves with white men, whether it be a father, a lover, or a husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and just speaking to the truth of the period, it would have been it would have been difficult for any woman, to live independently of that period, which is why I think Judith Philippe is just, can I curse? Yes, yes. That's why I think Judith Philippe is such a badass. Um, um, is because like she 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 refused to give up that agency. Um, both Maitland um, and I guess Dorothy Bennett too, um, though though Dorothy Bennett would not have can, would have not had the same level of um, kind of social prowess as mm-hmm. Judith Philippe had. Um, neither of those women m- married, um, yes. and so and so there so there is this you know there are legal implications to that um, in the sense that within the British Caribbean there was there were laws against marriage between folks of different racial backgrounds. Um, but it would have been possible for Judith Philippe to marry um, the guy that she spent a lot of time with. Uh, his name was Edward Thornton. Um, she was French. She was of French ancestry. He's of English ancestry. Um, and so, um, if they had been if they had been married under the French when French had occupied Grenada at the time, then they would have then their marriage would have been fine. However, when the British took over, it would have been considered a clandestine marriage, not necessarily because of issues relating to race, but because of issues relating to um, national identity yes. and religious backgrounds. Um, and so, but the thing is, is that all of these women, part of their wealth, part of their kind of security um, in the spaces that they lived in um, was in part of in part due to their adult associations with plantation men. Um, And so, um, and I think, and I think one of the kind of what we see in terms of their wills, how they secure financially and socially the benefits for their own daughters, um, especially with Maitland and with Philippe, um, is the fact that there is a there is an awareness of how um, how risky being an independent woman without means yeah. um, 
is, um, especially if you were born, um, especially if you were born with being, you know, being born to a, uh, to a woman of color. So like the mixed ancestry, um, I think has a bit more damning, you're potentially more targeted um, in terms of being a woman who, who owns property. Um, and so that's, I don't know, I thought that there was something that was really interesting. So like, yes, these women had agency. Yes, these women, yeah. um, especially when you look at the life of Judith Philippe, who is just an immensely just stronghold of a woman. Um, um, but um, but these women had to strategize. These women had to align themselves smartly um, because of the conditions that were situated around their identities as women of color. And so I find that so fascinating um, is that these women were these women were so aware and they took individualistic, opportunistic and potentially, you know, uh, potentially, I mean, the opportunistic decisions had negative implications for others in, in certain circumstances. And so um, and so I think just being mindful of that to your point that you said yeah. earlier on, Wendy, like it's really nuanced. It's not just black and white. There's so many shades of gray in between. Um, and I find that I find so I find that so fascinating. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Because I mean, what you're basically what you're describing is exactly as I said, exactly what um, has happened in, you know, in my family line that I was able to mm-hmm. discover because and it depended because they were in what is now present day St. Catherine, which at the time would have been St. Thomas E. Vale, which was probably, you know, more populous, a little bit more. They had a little bit more lean, lee, leeway to be able not to be uh, married, but mm. they definitely were associated to the right people. Just what you said, they have to they had to strategize. They had to think beyond just themselves. Yeah. And and how it was going to be for their children. And that's the other thing that I found really interesting is their children's, you know, married, but again, they were aligned to certain people, certain, you know, certain things for them to be able to ensure that the inheritance then went to the next generation. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I know that we're, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're still kind of, you know, talking on this, but I don't know, um, if there's community more on that point in terms of, you know, just that linkage of, you know, race, gender, property ownership during mm-hmm. this time, is there anything else that we didn't cover about it? Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think in terms of, in terms of the intergenerational kind of element that you're alluding to, like what I find really fascinating. So there, though I have access or, you know, folks have, uh, thankfully folks have access to the wills of Maitland and Philippe. Um, I do not have any access to Dorothy Bennett's will. Okay. Uh, I think I, or do I? No, I do not. Um, sorry. I've been, I'm, I'm thinking about Dorothy Bennett in particular, mm-hmm. um, but in the wills, of Maitland and Philippe, they're very clear, crystal clear about who is going to be the executors of their wills, yes. who is going to be serving to inherit, how much they are inheriting. Like it is, it is it, the the level of attention to detail is striking in these yes. wills as because it relates specifically to their daughters. Mm. Um and so that there's a there's significantly more vulnerability when it comes to from a woman to pass to another woman, um, passing properties, passing money, passing you know passing enslaved peoples. Um, by the time that Philip and Maitland are writing their wills, um, the institution of slavery has ended um, in the Caribbean. So at least with Philippe, um, she's writing her will in 1845, and so okay. that is well. So this is after um, the system of enslavement um, in the British Caribbean. Um, um, but they, you know, but they like secured a Maitland, for example, secured for her daughter, Rebecca Sherman, um, a, a trust and she, and Maitland made sure that, um, uh, Rebecca's 
husband was going to be the executor of said will. Mm -hmm. So she, so like, so Anne Maitland made sure that that money was going to be, she wrote out crystal clear that her daughter is receiving this inheritance. And by making her daughter's husband, the executor, she's essentially making sure that like it's staying within the family, um, which I think is, that's that's smart. That was a yeah. smart thing to do, um, and so um, and so it's like and that, the, that kind of foresight is is what I applaud in these women um, in terms of how they navigated the system of enslavement, how they navigated the system um, of uh, of being a woman of color, of being a woman. Um, yes when it comes to property laws, when it comes to social laws that, that, that are situated to marginalize women, um, how they were able to navigate that is just, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to, it's difficult to say they were, it's difficult. They were smart and they knew how they knew how to work the system. Yes. To their advantage. And it mm-hmm. just showed that whether you want to, you know, realize it or not, they had a lot of power and they yeah. were able to exact it the way that they wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was just, I mean, I think that was one of the things that really got to me, you know, looking at all of these records and knowing that, you know, they're making deals, they're selling their land or they're, you know, you know, whether it's just for they're leasing or land. they're buying yeah. land or leasing it out, they're, their contracts and I'm just looking at this going this is unreal and never would I have ever imagined that during this particular time frame period that not only were they free but they were able to do all of these things which is just you know for me just unreal just completely unreal you know so I think no please go ahead no go ahead go ahead I I was gonna say like to that point there is, I think that speaks to the kind of the, the less applaudable, you know, the less applaudable, the less applaudable kind of elements to the decisions that they made, right? Because, you know, a noble person, the best, you know, the best moralistic person would potentially manumit all their enslaved people, sell off their land, and then become a Quaker in New England, if not in Jamaica, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but the thing is, is that they, um, these women who were strategic, who were opportunistic, who were, who were kind of thinking about themselves and their future, um, and their, and their legacies, um, they, you know, as we kind of indicated, they, their strategy and their, their, um, their agency included, um, uh, you know, leasing their enslaved to to other plantation workers. It involved um, accumulating more property so that they could have more enslaved laborers. It included the purchase of enslaved laborers. And so, um, and so, yes, these, the, the, the article follows these three women and certainly there are moments where we were just like, yes, go get it. Yes. You know, but then also, you know, in getting it, um, to use the kind of, you know, very informal phrasing, they also, they, they're participating in institution, their, their power is gained through slavery. And what I think is, you know, for none of these women, at least from what I have kind of seen in my research of them, there was no sense of urgency when it came to liberating their enslaved laborers. There, the records indicate that they were quote unquote, and a big, big air mm-hmm. quotes here. They were kind enslavers, um, but they because and a way to track that is um, is to look to see um, if there were any accounts of um, of ho- of like hostility shown against the enslaved. Um, and so you only get a, you only you can only surmise that an individual is a good enslaver because they haven't violated, murdered, or beaten yes. uh, to the point of hospitalization. They're enslaved laborers. And so like just the just that kind of element is something that is a, 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 a terrible thing to have to discuss, yeah. but is true. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so while the records indicate that they were, you know, purportedly kind enslavers, they still benefited from the forced free labors of others. And so they contributed to the economy that profited from racist logic and systems of oppression. Um, And, you know, when I think as um, Eric Williams argues in his 1990 or 1944 book, which is like, it was such a forward thinking book. Um, It certainly, um, it was ahead of its time, certainly, but this 1944 publication of Capitalism and Slavery, um, written by Eric Williams, great, it's a great read for individuals who are maybe wanting to learn more about how like systems and how economy feeds into the kind of social stratification that lends itself to racist logic that lends itself to justifying the enslaved labor of um of folks of african ancestry by folks of european ancestry like where that can it comes from comes from in terms of economy and and slavery it's a great book great start um, and so, you know, at this within the context of what he was saying is that slavery, which is an out, he, you know, he argues that the systems of enslavement, slavery as an economic model is what happens when, um, is when capitalism goes off and it's unregulated. Um, and so, but like, it was that system in which these women lived their lives and is how they got and maintained their wealth. Um, and so, um, and so from what I can tell in terms of the property records, with the exception of one girl at the age of 15, um, who is manumitted by Judith Philippe's mother, um, there's only one individual in terms of the whole history of the women and their um, and their mothers and grandmothers that I have studied. There's only one person who was manumitted um, before, like openly manumitted before, um, before the um, abolition of slavery or emancipation, mm-hmm. right, in 1836. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I gather in the property records, it seems that it wasn't until the their descendants were compelled by law to manumit their enslaved and then were then compensated for that um and so um and compensated well um you know and so that is and so that is something that um that's something that is a part of the story too is that these women held on to their enslaved laborers as much as they could because they benefited from it and it wasn't until 1836 even though the law took the law was in place in 1833 it wasn't really until 1836 that um that um the emancipation processes and compensation went into went into action um in terms of um in terms of the way that british enslavers or british colonial enslavers would then manumit their enslaved um and so um and so yeah so there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of urgency for these women yes. to let to let go of their it, positions. Exactly, because this meant this meant their livelihood pretty much, yes. and uh, so they weren't they weren't going to let that go, unfortunately. But I, as I said, just it has me thinking back to you know that one uh, particular family member that yes. yes, she owned slaves, but yet she was willing to assist others that were running away from their owners and to be able to assist them and to harbor yeah. them to so i just find that just that alone is just like unbelievable yeah in terms that of that so, type of thinking and thinking is, you know <laughs> that is so fascinating i find myself yeah. super intrigued by what your what your ancestor was thinking yes. in terms of you know like did she were there you know like there's so many ways that you can think about this yes. about the, you know it's an individual it's an individual choice you know like she made the decision to do this for other enslaved laborers whether that be motivated by this kind of moralistic knowledge yes. that what she's doing is against a larger ethical code of shared humanity or um, or if it's like, or if she's maybe thinking, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know the ancestor. I want to know more about this person because I think that's fascinating. Or if she's thinking maybe potentially, you know, economically, like, oh, if 
if my other, if this, if my competitor is, you know, is, has less labor than I have more labor than I, you know, you know, and so it's like, what could be, you know, what could be motivating the decisions to participate, um, you know, for a, for a woman who was both an enslaver, but also a liberator of the enslaved. I mean, that's, it makes one, I want to have like an, you know, you want to sit her down and be like, exactly. so tell me, <laughs> you know, what were you thinking? <laughs> and, what you know, and what, what was going on and what was your driving force, right? So it's just one of those things when you look at that and you're just scratching your head going, how can this be? And knowing that, again, these are the stories that aren't really told. And these yes. are the different layers. Once you start peeling back the onion uh, of, of slavery of that time and mm-hmm. what was really going on, it's not just so dry as I keep saying, because it's, it's not an, and, and every, every page I, I turn, it's like something else. And I'm like going, Whoa, this is not what I was expecting. And yeah. uh, you just, you just sit back and just kind of shake your head and just kind of see, well, okay, but it kind of makes sense for right now, because now I see how certain people conduct themselves, why they do what they do, because I'm pretty sure this was brought down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, mm-hmm. to be told, this uh-huh. is what we did, right? This uh-huh. is how we managed to make sure that the next generation is taken care of. Yeah, agreed. We I think I think we rely upon those stories for a sense of connection to the past, to the land that we are on, to the land that our ancestors once occupied. Yeah. Like we we need those stere- those stories to keep us grounded to this past community of folks. Um, but I think also with the those stories are shaped by and contextualized the present moment, you know? And so um, I know, for example, my, you know, maybe going uh, Mm -hmm. a bit personally, um, but my, my father told me a story um, when I was a little girl about how during the American civil war in the, in the mid 19th century, that quote, brother fought against brother. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that there was, you know, there was folks who were unionists in the North fighting secessionists from the South and they were fighting each other. And so it was a huge families were broken up, et cetera. Well, you do a little digging. (laughs) And I came, I came to the realization that that was a lie um that that was that was a story that was told to him by his grandfather who was told to him by his father father's father etc um and the truth of the matter is is that um kind of speaking plainly my ancestors were secessionists they were all they all fought for the american south um and so um but they but and they fought to perpetuate the continuation of enslavement um and so but I think there needed to be a story of how there was an ancestor who was fighting for the union because that was now, right? That was the outcome of the civil war. Um, and so needing to have that narrative of like, nope, not all of our ancestors were Southern enslavers um, is, is something that, you know, I find, I find kind of fascinating. And I think that it, I think it lends itself to an important conversation that we need to have within ourselves when we're mm-hmm. thinking about, as we look back to the past, right? That yes. like, to, you know, it's not just cut and dry. It's not just X. It's not just Y. It's not just, you know, not all of our ancestors were brilliant, amazing, incredible, thoughtful, courageous, gentle, kind people. Like some of them were 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 assholes and manipulative. Um, some and you know, and some were just working with a broken system and tried to yes. make things work for themselves and for their families and for their communities. And so, you know, and so, you know, it's in it, at least in my mind, when going back to the past, um, it's so critical for the, you know, either the genealogical historian or the scholar or the whomever to to keep an open mind and to think about 
the individual contexts in which a person, as you're looking at a document and it, it marks a decision that has been made or a transaction that has been processed, going to the going to the individual decisions of that person and being able to kind of piece through the documents um, what, what may have been happening there and to think about it from an individual perspective. Um, and so, um, and so that's something that, that's something that I think is important kind of with the research that I do, yes. um, and for individuals who are looking to have like a, I'm, you know, for those who are doing genealogical research, it's like, oh, I am the, you know, the 12th granddaughter of a great King, you know, like, exactly. uh, you know, it's like most of us were, our ancestry dates, dates back to individual experiences, individual people who were just trying to survive. Um, And so, um, and so being, keeping an open mind, I think is such a critical component to, to doing that kind of investigation, especially, especially because it's such a personal thing that is being done. No, no, definitely. Absolutely. Because I mean, you'll hear a lot of different stories, you know, just Mm -hmm. as what you had described, Um, you know, I'll say as an example for myself is, Oh, Wendy, you know, the, they were missionaries and I'm thinking, okay, wonderful that they were missionaries, but it doesn't seem to match up with what I'm uncovering, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you just have to be um, not only mindful, but I guess to be polite, let people, if they have their own stories that they want to go with, leave them. You don't necessarily have to challenge yeah. them on it. You just have to keep continuing on what you know and what you've, you know, found and continue with um and 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 and, and just go with that and know that not everybody's going to see this everything the same way that you see it. It's going to be each each individual see it the, their own different way and they're mm-hmm. going to align to what story makes them feel comfortable for what they don't want to see and that is fine because not everybody wants to you know see the same things as I said there's just different um, pieces to the puzzle and um, people have their own different references that's what I've Mm -hmm. noticed as well so it's just being respectful to you know what people want to to know uh, for what they are willing to know and what they want to know those are two totally different things right so Um, it is it is true that people everybody it's just a human thing we need our stories to keep us grounded with who we are um and the idea of thinking about a story as not being true um as in the case of you know the father my father's story um like that is that's something that can break a person down. And so to your point, Wendy, like it's important that people hold on to the stories that they've got because it's, it's how they define themselves. And so unless you're willing to put a family member in an existential crisis, like it's, you know, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's good that they hold on to their stories. But I also think that like, you know, there is going to be, um, you know, if, if sharing the truth of this history is something that is important, which I, I would think that it is an important thing to share the truth of this history to at least a larger audience of people, there is a process of kind of healing, I think, yes. Um, yes. that um, that can happen if um, if the truth is then kind of set in front of you and it's undeniable. Um, and so again, too, as a historian, you have to like weigh the, the fact that, you know, that, that your family members have stories that they hold so close to them. But if you find like through the historical records that like it belies a kind of darker history then, you know, how can you be sensitive to the story as well at the same time, kind of sharing the truth yes. um, of the lived experience of, of ancestors? Um, and so I, so it's a, you know, just like history itself, it is very sticky business. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I truly appreciate 
you know, when I came across this article, it was mm. almost something of a, not necessarily a justification, but in, um, I guess just just to know that this is actually this has actually been written about, and not just me one time finding this information and knowing that this is totally different from the history that I've been told, um, just in general, and then mm -hmm. coming to find this type of history going, oh, there's many different layers within the context of slavery as to what was actually happening at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm so glad that I'm so glad that this article is is out. I'm not in the, the you know, truth be told, I'm not the only person mm -hmm. who is writing of these of these fantastic figures of our past. Um in the if anybody, you know, if anybody wants to reach out, um the the article is currently behind a paywall. But um I would be happy to share lists of other books that are cited in the um that are cited in the work cited um page of folks who are doing this kind of work there is um you know it, it's worth noting that like it's not just me like within the world mm -hmm. of 18th century um caribbean studies um there's a fantastic book there's two books that i think are worth mentioning now just because i have them on the top of my head and that is um, Christine Walker's book, Jamaican Ladies, which yes. looks specific. Do you know Jamaican Ladies? I don't know it. I want to read it. <laughs> it is such a yeah. good book. It is such a good book. Um, but so Christine Walker's Jamaican Ladies, it's great. It looks specifically at women enslavers um, and um, predominantly white. Um, mm -hmm. But we have a few who are of mixed ancestry that she talks a bit more in detail. Um, and um, uh, and then Daniel Livesay's Children of Uncertain Fortune. Um, it is a book that looks at, it's much more transatlantic in nature in the sense of like thinking about, um, thinking about the Caribbean diaspora in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, looking at folks who were subject to inheritance um, and went to England. Um, and so, um, and so it's a, it's a kind of a catalog of these, of these stories. Um, the individuals that are coming out of Live Say's book are much more middle class in terms of like, in terms of how they were, you know, in terms of going to school and being educated yeah. with a very traditional kind of English um, context and English middle class life. Um, but there is, um, um, but there's, you know, there's, there's an exciting kind of middling story to be shared too with these folks. Mm -hmm. And then another book, is um is uh Olivet Otel's book African Europeans. It's that's okay. much more like continental in context. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but she looks at um, but she looks at individuals of African ancestry who have lived on the continent, and so it's not just okay. a British Caribbean context. It's far more. Um, it's far more expansive when we when okay. we kind of zoom out into the transatlantic connections. Perfect. I will put those in the show notes so people can link on those. So that would be great. Perfect. And again, I just wanted to thank you so much, Victoria, for coming on and to be able to speak Hope to you this. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you uh, did, please make sure um, to like, the follow, subscribe, so and write a review so for the episode oh my God, wherever thank you, you listen so much to for your me. podcast. Thank you.